as we continue through uh, the Bible, uh, we're going to look at the final prayer of Jesus. Now, I was talking to April about this, and I said, we're going to look at John 17. That's the final prayer of Jesus. And she said, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. She goes, no, it's not. He prayed in the garden, too, and he prayed on the cross. Like, okay, this is the final public prayer of Jesus, all right? The, the prayer in the garden uh, was private. The apostles were sleeping. This was a public prayer where he stopped what he was doing. He went with his disciples, and he prayed with them. So this is the final public prayer of Jesus just to make April happy. Uh, now, at this point in the story, Jesus has, he's, he's completed the majority of his earthly ministry. He's, he's, he's done all the miracles he's going to do. He's done all the teaching he's going to do. He's done all the healing he's going to do. The only thing left for him to do is die on the cross and rise from the grave. So the majority of his earthly ministry is done. He has already had the last supper with his apostles. Judas has already betrayed him and left to go get the guards, the, the temple guards, to have Jesus arrested. So after the Lord's Supper, after Judas leaves, Jesus and the remaining apostles, they, they get up and they walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, on the journey from the upper room to Gethsemane, Jesus takes his time, and he gives some incredible teaching. If you, you study the story, as they're going to the garden, they are passing through some vineyards. And so he begins to teach about the, the truth of, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, then you shall bear much fruit. And so he teaches about the, the abiding life of, of a believer. He, he talks about the persecution that they're going to face from the world. He talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit. He tells them, I'm going to go, but I'm going to send you another comforter, one that's going to empower you and help you and teach you and guide you. And so he's, he's giving all these incredible lessons before he dies. He knows what's coming. He knows this is the last time he has to really impart his wisdom and what he needs him to know to his followers before he's crucified. He knows what's coming. Then after he, he finishes all that teaching, before they get to the garden where he prays by himself, he asked, you know, Peter, John, and, to, and to, uh, Paul to stay with, not Paul, Peter, John, and Andrew to pray with them, James to pray with them, but they fall asleep. But he's, he's not just following three close men. He, he gets all of his apostles together. And he, he teaches them this. And then he says, I want to pray for you real quick. Imagine you know that the end is near for you. You've, you've got some illness, whatever. You've committed a bunch of crimes on your death row, I don't know, and no one cares what you say then. But anyway, your life is coming to an end. You know that this is your last night on earth. You've 
You've, you've got your, your, you know, your, your mental capacity to vouch you. Because sometimes when people are reaching the end of their life, they kind of don't really know what's going on. But you've, you've got your mental capacity. So you've got some fatal disease that's going to kill you in the morning, but you're still, you know, lucid and talking and whatnot. And you had one last opportunity to pray with your loved ones and pray over them. What would you pray? What would you want to impart to them? What would you want them to know? How would you want them to feel as you prayed for them the last hours of your time on earth? And that's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. Chapter 17 is Jesus the, right before he's arrested and he knows this is his last chance to pray with all of his disciples. And he's praying for them and he's, he's praying over them. And it, this, this chapter shows us not just Jesus' prayer for his apostles that are there, but this prayer is also for us. He's praying over every person who would ever come to know him as Savior. So when you read chapter 17, it's not just a prayer. It is the last words of Jesus to you, about you, before he's crucified. These are, this is an important thing. These are important words for us to say. Now, there are some things that Jesus prayed that were unique to, to him. But his prayer gives us a pattern to follow in our own prayer life. You know, too often we as believers, our, our prayers, they're filled with cliches. They're filled with kind of just fancy, nice sounding words. You know, we have our prayer list and we're praying for people. Maybe we're praying for missionaries and we just say, God bless the missionary, bless this person, bless that person. But what does that really even mean? Or, you know, we pray, God, please be with us. You know, Jesus, God says in, in Hebrews chapter 13 that he's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. So why are we praying for something we're already promised? God, please be with us. And God's like, I am. I always have been. I'm, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never. Remember, I said that. So why are you praying for something that's already been promised to you. Or we pray things that don't make sense. And I've told you this is my, the, my, my, my least favorite. God put a hedge of protection around us. What is a hedge of protection? I don't want to, if I want protection, I don't want a hedge. Because you know what can go through a hedge? Darts, swords, knives, bullets. Hedges aren't solid. I'm like, I want bulletproof glass around me if I want protection. I want actual protection. God, give me a bunker of protection. Or Lord, give us traveling mercies. And God's in heaven going, wear your seatbelt, obey the speed limit, stop texting and driving, there's your mercy. Don't do stupid stuff and you'll be okay. Or, or here's my favorite. God, bless this food to our body's nourishment and strength. And God's in heaven going, that's a double bacon cheeseburger, chili cheese fries, and a large Coke. There's nothing I can do with that. I created everything, and I can't help you there. You want the food to bless your body? Eat some broccoli. 
built-in blessing. But we, we pray these things because it's just, it's just what we pray. It's just how we, we do things. You know, or, you know, I, a lot of times in college, we would always have people before we took a test, we would have some, some students like, hey, can we pray before we take the test and pray that God helps us do well on the test? And whenever I got asked to pray, I always prayed, God, help us get the, the grade we studied for. People hated that. Like, you want God to bless you on a test? Study. Usually, there was a girl in our old church back in Lynchburg. She was studying to be a nurse. And every time she had a test, she would come and say, please pray that God would help me pass this test. I'm like, I don't want a nurse that was prayed through nursing school. I want a nurse that studied and learned it. God didn't just magically give her the answers. That's not what I want for my life. You know, it's just so we, we pray these things. And I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place to pray those things. But they shouldn't be the core of our prayer life. This passage, it shows us how, how to pray like Jesus did. How to pray for the things that Jesus prayed for in his final prayer. So let's, let's look at the first thing that Jesus prayed for. Number one, Jesus prayed for himself. Jesus prayed for himself. Look at chapter 17, starting in verse number one. <clears throat> These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thy, thou me with, my, with thine own self, with the glory which I have with thee before the world was. Now, it may seem strange that when, when Jesus, you know, God in the flesh, when he opens up his final prayer, he's praying for himself. But look what he's asking for himself. He is asking God to glorify him. He's saying, God, give me glory so I can glorify you. Give me glory so I can point people to you. And that's the key. You know, we sometimes have the wrong idea of what Christian humility really is. We think a humble believer is someone who does not seek success or prosperity. Now, don't get me wrong. I am one million percent, and I know that's impossible, but I am, one million percent against the prosperity gospel. It is a false doctrine. You cannot, God does not promise you health and wealth just because you're his. He doesn't do that. 
He never says, if you accept me as your savior, you're going to be rich and powerful and healthy and all that stuff. And you cannot give $100 of seed faith to some televangelist and God's got to give you 10000 That's not how it works. You mean to prove it? Give me 100 bucks. Everybody, let's try it. Everybody give me 100 bucks and see what happens, all right? I'll have more money. You will not. So that's not how it works. But God, Jesus here, he isn't asking God to bless him or glorify him so he can become well-known or he can get a lot of money. He says, God, glorify me so I can glorify you. Bless me so I can point people to you. Humility is not avoiding success and prosperity. It's a decision to use whatever prosperity God has given you, to use whatever provision God has given you to point people to him. It is praying, God, bless me so I can glorify you. You know, I pray that God glorifies New Grace Baptist Church, but not for us. Not so people can say, man, that's a great church up there on the hill, and man, that pastor's awesome, and we should all give him 100 bucks. I keep throwing that out there. I'm going to see who takes the bait. But, you know, we should all go up. I, I don't want God to glorify New Grace for New Grace. I want God to glorify New Grace so we can glorify God by shedding the gospel to Roanoke and the world. We want to be blessed for his glory. And you can pray this in your own life, but it's a hard prayer to pray with the right motive in your heart. So how can you tell if you're praying this prayer that you have the right motive? Here's a couple ways. When God gets glory by exalting someone else, specifically someone you don't like, God is glorified because he's exalting someone you're not that, 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 that you don't like that much. How do you feel? Are you glad God's getting glory or are you upset someone else is getting exalted? I can't believe God would use them. Instead of, I am so glad God is using that person to build his kingdom. You know, another way is to see what you do when you suffer. Jesus prays, God, glorify me so I can glorify you. God answered that prayer by sending Jesus to the cross. By having Jesus be beaten and scourged and spit upon and mocked and ridiculed and rejected. That's how he glorified Jesus so Jesus could glorify him. Sometimes God gets glory through our suffering. How do we respond when God sends suffering our way? Are we like, God, help me to use this as a way to glorify you? Or do we get upset that we're suffering at all? You know, God, God gets glory when a believer is healed 
of a terrible disease. When a believer is sick and God touches them and they are healed miraculously, God gets the glory. But God also gets glory when a believer dies because they're still healed. Matter of fact, they're healed better because you're, you get healed on earth, great. You know what's gonna happen? You're gonna get sick again. You get healed in heaven, you know what happens? You never get sick again, ever. You are completely healed. And is God getting as much glory in believers coming home to him as he is in believers getting healed on earth? You know, when we are in our pain, when we are able to say that we have a greater treasure in heaven than we do with earthly benefits or health on earth, then God gets the glory. When we say in the middle of our confusion and disappointment that we trust God and we don't know what he's doing, but we trust he's doing it for our good and we praise him and we worship him even in our pain, then God gets the glory. Because God showed himself trustworthy on the cross, we can trust him in any situation that we face. In Jesus' final prayer, he prayed for himself, but he prayed, God, glorify me so I can glorify you. Me for you, God. You know, most of us pray as if we're, we're trying to get God on our side. Here's a, a truth from the Bible. If you're a child of God, he's already on your side. You don't got to convince him to get involved or convince him to get, get on your side. He's already on your side. He is for you. He has promised to be with you and to help you. The question isn't, is God on your side? The question is, are you on God's side? Are you asking God, God, no matter how you do it, whether it's through blessings or pain, Help me glorify you. Use me to glorify you. Jesus prayed for himself. Here's the second thing Jesus prayed for. <clears throat> Jesus prayed for his disciples. Jesus prayed for his disciples. Look at verse number six. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou manifest. I have, I have made known. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out that they I came out from thee, and they had believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. I know there's a lot of, a lot of words like, I don't know what he's talking about here. We're gonna talk about this. All right, the bulk of this Jesus, this is the bulk of Jesus' prayer. He is, 
before his, his arrest, before his persecution, before his crucifixion, he is praying for his disciples except Judas. Verse 12, we're going to see he excludes Judas. He's like, I'm praying for all these men except that guy. You know what he did. And so he's praying for all of them except for Jesus. Now, the principle here is that we are to pray for those, that, that as we pray for those who, who do the Christian life with us. We are to pray for our Christian friends, our Christian relatives. You say, I don't got any Christian friends. That's a problem. And we're going we're gonna to show that in a bit. But we are to pray for those who do the Christian life with us. Those in our family, those in our growth groups, those in our Sunday school class, those in our church family. Christian friends are vital to the life of a believer. Christian friendship is the greatest earthly gift that God ever gave us. Now, the greatest gift of salvation but the greatest gift he's given us on earth are other believers to do life with. We all need friends that love us and pray for us daily. I have never seen a healthy Christian, a Christian who is what, not that they don't struggle, because look, we all struggle. We all have ups and downs with God. We all have times where we feel like God's just so close that we can just feel the Shekinah glory as we pray and read our Bible. And we also have times where we, we pray and we're like, God, I'm doing everything right and you're a billion miles away. David had those. Don't feel bad. You know, David in one psalm was like, God, you're so close. I love you. I feel like your love's going to kill me. The very next chapter, God, you're so far away. I don't know what's going on. So we all have ups and downs. So don't get, when you're, don't get prideful when you're up and don't get bit, you know, angry when you're down. You're going to have those. Just keep going. But I've never seen a truly healthy Christian who didn't have good Christian friends. I've seen a lot of people who didn't have Christian friends who were lousy Christians. But I've never seen a good, healthy Christian who didn't have good Christian friends. Friends encourage us. Friends keep us accountable. Friends rebuke us when we need to be rebuked. Friends help us walk with God. In Genesis 2, remember the story of creation? God creates day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, it's good. All the days, it's good. Creates man, it's good. Says, looks at all of it, says, it's very good. Then he looks at man by himself, says, that's not good. It is not good that man be alone. He needs a friend. Well, he gave him a spouse. The, when the, the help meet that he gave him in Eve literally means like a, a partner, a co-pre. It was not just a spouse. Yes, it was a spouse. It was incredible love, but it was someone to do life with. God said, man, everything's great, except that man's alone. It is not good that man is alone. Proverbs 18 says an isolated man is on the road to destruction. 
Friends are necessary in the Christian life. We need Christian friends. But how do we get them? Well, the best way to find Christian friends is in a church. Thank you, April. Yes. But you know what the best way to find a Christian friend in the church is? Get involved in another group. We have growth groups, meet weekly. They're, they're taking a break during the summer, but when school starts back up, our growth groups are going to start back up. Get involved in a growth group. We have Sunday school classes. Get involved in a Sunday school class. Get involved, not just come. You don't make friends by coming to church on Sunday morning and sitting down and leaving. That's not how you make friends. You make friends by studying the word of God with them, praying with them, hearing their burdens and sharing yours and encouraging each other's. Get involved. But not only does he pray for his friends, look what he prays for his friends, starting in verse number 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, uh, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. So he prays right here, he goes, God, I'm gonna leave. I need you to keep them together. Keep them unified. Keep them on the same team. Continue verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Again, that word kept is, it means to, to protect and keep unified. I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gave, gave me, I kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's where he says, except Judas, but you know what he did and why he did it, and that's fine. Verse 13, and now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Now, so he doesn't pray. He goes, God, I, I, I've, I've kept them together. I've kept them focused. I've kept them on the same, same mission, but I'm gonna leave. And God, you know these guys. They're gonna, they're gonna start fighting again. Lord, keep them together, keep them unified. But Lord, don't take them out of the world. Don't remove them from the world. Protect them while they are in the world. He prays that they be kept in the power of God in the world. We are never meant to be isolated from the world. There are a lot of believers that think that, look, when I first got into church, the church I was part of and the branch Christianity, they believe that, that you were to stay separated from the world as much as possible. You know, you, you avoided anything that the world had. You couldn't even go to the movies because if you went to the movies, even if they were showing fireproof, but if you went to the movies, then people would think you're seeing a bad movie and they would look bad upon you. And so you couldn't, you couldn't, couldn't dance. Now, that's good for me because I can't dance anyway. Uh, I like to, but I'm bad at it. Uh, anyway, uh, but you couldn't do anything. You, you had to stay as separated from the world as possible. You couldn't even have, it got so far that you couldn't even have Christian, you couldn't even have non-Christian friends. And so since there were a bunch of non-Christians in the public schools, they would start Christian schools to keep the Christian kids separated from the world. But then I went to Bible college. I went to public school back in the 90s, uh, but still public school. Then I got saved. Then I went to Bible college as an adult. And I met a lot of kids who went to Christian schools. They were the worst kids. 
They, they knew all the stuff that the public school kids were, or, well, they learned it in public school. No, they didn't. They learned it from each other. Being separated from the world didn't help the Christian. It hurt the Christian, but it also hurt the world because they were taking the testimony of Jesus out of the public school. Now, you say, are you against Christian school? No, I'm not against Christian. We homeschool our kids. We, why? Because we want to keep them out of the school. Because I don't trust public school either. I want to know what I'm teaching them. So I'm not like, send your kids to public school. But I'm also not like, we got to stay as separate from possible as possible. No, we are to be a part of the world. Now, there's wisdom in how we do it. There's wisdom in what we do. But we are not to be removed from the world. True discipleship isn't being isolated from the world, but it's living like Jesus in the world. David Platt said this, our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service. So when you remove yourself from the world, you lose your evangelistic witness, and that's why God put us here. That's what we're here for. Do, you know, that's why God left us in the world. We are to engage people outside the church whose lives are not part of the church. That's why I'm, in our class, I'm talking about neighboring people. We are to engage people who are outside the church to encourage them and to love them and to show them the love of God to bring them in. Holiness that is disconnected from the world is not holiness at all. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. That word means set apart, not take out, but set apart for purpose. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. See, the word sanctify means to set apart or make holy. Jesus wants us in the world, but he doesn't want us to be shaped by the world. So how do we stay holy in an unholy world? Jesus says the greatest way to stay holy in an unholy world is by knowing the word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. How do we stay holy? By reading and studying and memorizing and listening to the word of God. Your success in the world, spiritually, your success of your kids will not be based on how well you isolate them from lies, but how much they know the truth. It's as much as how you insulate them with the word of God. You want success and stability and you want to have wisdom, you need the word of God. You want your kids to have a happy, healthy marriage and successful relationships throughout their lives, they need to know the word of God. And you have to have them around the word of God as much as possible. In the church, as much as possible, learning the word of God. Jesus, in this part, he is specifically concerned about two things in regard to the truth. The first is that they recognize that the Bible, the word of God, is of divine origin. Look at verse number seven again. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. 
all the words that I've spoken, they know that they're from you. They know that you gave me these words and these are divine words of God. God wants to have to, us to have confidence in the word of God that he has given us. He wants us as his children to say, God, there are things in here I don't like. There are things in here you tell me I shouldn't do. There are things that, Lord, when I read them, it, it convicts me and makes me change my relationships and how I treat people and the things I look at. And God, there are things in here that really, they, they keep me from doing what I want to do. But God, your word is true. Every single one of them, no matter how the world gets. Look, it's 2021. The world is messed up. There's a lot of things the world says are okay that are not okay. That the Bible says they're not okay. They're, look, oh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be offensive or hurt or, you know, this is going on on the internet. I'm not trying to bash anybody or hurt anybody. But look, with the, the, the transgender issue that is coming up right now, it's huge. It's all over the place. People say, well, you know, God made me a boy, but I feel like a girl, so I'm going to, or God made me a girl, and I feel like a boy, so I'm going to try. When you say that, you're saying God made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. The word of God says he didn't make you wrong. He made you who you are, perfect in his image as you are. Now, look, that does not give us a right to be hateful and cruel to people who are like that. People who struggle with that, they, they have issues that we are never going to understand. And that doesn't give us the right to say, you're wrong and going to hell. No, we have to show them the love of God. Because even if they've gone through the transition, they still need Jesus. They, can, they still need to be saved. They still need the church family to love them and tell them, hey, you've made mistakes. Guess what? We all have. Get in line. Yours may be more obvious than mine, but we're all messed up but we just want to love Jesus. But we can't say, oh, well, if that's how you feel, then I guess you're right, even though the Bible says you're wrong. No, the Bible's the Bible. It's true no matter what. We have to believe it no matter what. See, in his prayer, Jesus wants his disciples, those who receive the gospel. If you're a child of God, you are to be a disciple of Jesus. He wants us to know that the word he gave us came from God. It is pure, holy, eternal words. This isn't a collection of enlightened thoughts about Jesus. These are the very words of God. His second concern is that not only would they know his words are true, but they would live his words. Look at verse number eight. For I have given unto them the words which thou hast gavest me, they have received them and have known surely that I came out from, from thee uh, and they have believed that thou didst send me. See, Jesus can teach all the words of God he wants to teach. He can, he can preach the gospel and teach them what God says, but they have to accept it and live it. That's, what, that's why your personal devotions are so vital. You know, it's great that you come to church, and I know I'm, pre I'm preaching to y'all who on a Sunday morning came to church to listen to me 
talk about the Bible and yell at you for a long time. I get that. I know some of y'all are like, he's been talking a while. He should shut up. I still got 10 minutes. Bless God. Maybe more. <laughs> but I know y'all are like, you know, y'all like, hey, we're, we're the good Christians. We came to church. Great. You need more than Sunday. You know, Jesus says these are, are they give us as they are daily bread. You want to see how, in, how important it is? Go home, eat lunch. You can have a big meal because, again, this is a long sermon. You can have a big meal. Have stuff yourself. But don't eat again until next Sunday afternoon. Tell me how important food is to you. That's how important the word of God is to you. We have to have it every single day. And look, again, 2021, there's no excuse not to. It's everywhere. It's, yeah, I have, I have this one here that I need, I need to get it fixed or get a new one. Uh, but I have this one. I have, I have my, my old study Bible. I have my, my preaching Bible elsewhere. I've got five or six or seven Bibles everywhere. But you know, I also have it on my tablet, have it on my phone, have it on my computer. When I'm studying a sermon and I'm preparing a sermon, I never open up an actual Bible. I open up a website that has the Bible. And I read it on my computer screen. Why? Because it's so much easier to search than saying, I think it's in this verse. I can just say, oh, that's the verse. I was right. So yeah, there's Bibles everywhere. You can have it read to you. You can, you can have, there's, there's podcasts that teach it or read it or even sing it to you. There's no excuse to say, I just, I don't have time. When you get in your car to go to work, Instead of listening to music or listening to a podcast or what, listen to the Word of God. Or listen to a podcast about the Word of God. We have to have the Word of God to know it and to believe it and live it. That's why your devotion is so important. It's where you learn of God's promises and learn to live them in your life. That's why our growth group are so important. Some things about God are learned better in small groups than large spaces. Because in the growth groups, we talk about the sermon. And I know some of you throughout my sermons, y'all have questions. And you're like, hey, I wonder what he means by that. Or hey, this gets my mind thinking about something else. You know, in growth groups where we can ask those questions and talk about them. And study them and say, hey, that's a great question. Let's, let's, let's dive into that. And that's where we learn the word of God. So Jesus prayed for himself. Jesus prayed for his disciples. Thirdly, Jesus prayed for his church. Jesus prayed, Parker, Jesus prayed for his church. Look at verse number 20 in chapter 17. Neither pray I for those alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's you, by the way. So this wasn't about me, this is you. So he says, all those things I prayed, they're not just for these guys, they're for anyone who will ever accept me as their savior. And I pray that's you that they may be all be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I give unto them, which they may be one, even as we are one. You notice a theme here? I don't. You're in a, in a minute, you will. Uh, 
I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me, and they hast loved me, for I am one. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me uh, where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. Now, Jesus, he doesn't pray for the world. He prays for believers in the world. He said in verse 9, he wasn't praying for the world. He's not praying for lost people here. But for those who are in the world who would come to him for salvation. Now, it's not because he doesn't care about the lost. He came for the lost. They're why he came here. He, he came and lived a perfect life and died for the sins of the world. It's because the hope of the world, the hope of any community is found in the believers in that community. So if you want to pray for a group, because look, there, there, there are people, and I do it, there, there are, are thousands upon thousands of unreached people groups in our world. A people group is a, a culture of people. They may be, you know, in, in, a, in a particular country with other believers, but they're a, a kind of an isolated culture of people who do not have a representative or a, a access to the word of God. Now, I think of the, the Uyghurs in, in China, and they're on the news a lot lately. These Muslim Uyghurs in China, in that group, 0.001% are believers. Now, that's, we're talking several million people and point zero. So, should we pray for the Uyghurs? Yes. But pray for the believers who are in that community that they can help reach the lost with the gospel. Pray for those that live in the community. Pray for God to raise up and strengthen believers in that group. You know, pray for America, yes. Pray for Roanoke, of course, but pray for the health of the churches in America and in Roanoke. Look, when I pray for Roanoke, I don't just pray for New Grace. I pray for, for Lakeside and I pray for, for uh, all these other churches that are throughout Shenandoah and other churches that I see that I know are gospel preaching churches. They may not even be Baptists. I don't care. They're preaching the gospel. I pray for them to be healthy and for them to have a gospel representative in the community because look, we can't reach Roanoke by ourselves. We don't have to. There's other believers. So pray for God to strengthen and build up churches and believers in our area. We should pray for God to raise and strengthen believers in the church so they can point people to Jesus. The church is God's plan A for working in the world. And there is no plan B. It's the main thing Jesus prayed for the last night of his life. Now, it's easy for us as believers to get frustrated with the church. You know, I've talked to people who, I've talked to believers who have gotten out of church because of church hurt, because of something that happened that they never really resolved. Talking to like, I'm not going back to church. That church is full of hypocrites. Look, our church is not full of hypocrites. We have plenty of room for more. Now, there's plenty here, but we got plenty of empty seats for more hypocrites. So if you're watching and you're a hypocrite, we got room for you. 
But, you know, people, people get angry about that and they, they, they hate going to church because it's, 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 it causes pain. You know, I'm the first to admit that our church is messed up. You know why? Because we're all messed up. And I'm messed up. If you're looking for a perfect church, you ain't ever going to find it. Because even if you find the only perfect church is an empty church, and then when you walk in, it ain't perfect anymore. You done ruined it. There are no perfect churches. We are just a bunch of messed up people led by a messed up person. And Jesus knew the church was going to be messed up. Look at the people in his group. Judas was in this group. Judas was a church founder. And he betrayed Christ. Peter's in this group. Cussing Peter. Peter, who when Jesus arrested, is hacking off people's ears. Peter is a messed up dude. And then when after, after the resurrection, Peter goes fishing and he's hanging out on the boat naked when Jesus shows up. Peter's a messed up guy, but that's fine. He had a, a thief, a liar, a betrayer. Peter was a coward. And he, even 10 years after he received the Holy Spirit, 10 years after he helped start the church and he's doing great things for God. You read some of his writings 10 years later. Peter's still pretty racist against Gentiles. Ten years later, Peter was messed up. Jesus even called Peter Satan. James and John were constantly worried about who was going to be, have more authority in the kingdom of God. Thomas didn't even believe in the resurrection until he saw Jesus personally in the flesh. So yeah, the church is messed up and Jesus knows it's messed up. And that's why he prayed for it. Because the only hope for the world is a group of messed up people who love Jesus and want to bring people to him. The church has problems because you're a part of it. And you have problems. You know, when we pray for the world, we should pray for the spiritual health of believers in the world to help them reach the world. Yeah, pray for America. Pray for Roanoke. But pray for the church to be healthy and bold and focused on the gospel. The second thing that we've noticed is that Jesus prays for us to feel and share God's love in a real way. Look at verse number 26. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare that thou love wherewith thou hast loved them, and may be in them, and I in them. So here's what he's praying. He's praying that we would love Jesus the way that God loves Jesus and that we would love others the way Jesus loves us. When we do that, people will know that Jesus is real. Look at verse 23 again. It says, I in them and thou in me that thou may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and thou hast loved them now hast loved me. So how does the world know that God is real? Not by how well I preach, not by how well you sing, not by how you vote, but by how you love. The love of God isn't something the world can see on their own. Their eyes are blind to it. The love of God's people for each other, 
the love of God's people for the world, the love of God, the love of God's people for their community is what makes the love of God visible to the lost world. We show love in two ways. First, in how we serve our community. That's why I believe the community cupboard and the community closet here at New Grace are the most important ministries we have. We are showing the love of God to our community who is in need. People who need food or need clothes or need whatever. We are physically showing them the love of God. But it needs to go further. I am always looking for a way for us as a church to reach out to our community. I have a meeting this Thursday and I'm training with an organization called Restoring Hope Roanoke. They are a faith-based organization that their entire mission is to help churches show the love of God to their community. And they have lots of ways to help serve in Roanoke. You can help meet with international students or people who are coming here and moving here from different places in the world to help them get settled or help them help them figure out how to get things done or find a way around the city. Remember how you first were when you moved here? You know, it was confusing. You're like, I've lived here my whole life. I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to someone else. When you first got here, it's confusing. You don't know where anything is. You don't know where anything closes. So you can help people who are new to the area and new to our culture learn how to settle in and help them. Or it can be as, as invested as helping people with their finances, helping with job training, or just going with a woman who is, part, who is going to the women's uh, center here, uh, the Roanoke Women's Center, uh, the Blue Ridge Women's Center, who is choose, a woman who is choosing life. But who's alone, you can just go and hold her hand while she's getting an ultrasound. Encourage her. Just pray with them because they encourage you to share your faith. So you can, I don't have time to do, to get really involved. Good. Can you, can you be a blessing to a woman who is choosing life over abortion and say, I'll, I'll, I'll hold your hand while you're getting this ultrasound. I'll help you go to your doctor's appointments. I'll pray with you. I'll do whatever I can to encourage you because you're making a tough choice. You can get involved in so many ways. And so, you know, we can, well, I'm talking to abuse survivor groups, refugee groups, just any way for us as God's children to say, God, how can I show your love to my area, to my community, to those who, who don't know it, to those who a lot of people don't expect the love of God from God's children because all they've received is judgment and ridicule and pain and hurt. And so the last place they expect to get love is the church. But then one of God's people shows up and says, hey, I'm, I'm part of the church, but I just, I just want to love you. I just want to help you. I just want to encourage you. We can show the love of God. Here's the second way we show the love of God. Not just by how we help our community, but by how unified we are in the church. Look at verse 23 again. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And the world may know that thou hast sent me and thou hast loved them for, how the I, for, they have, for I have loved them. So when we lose our unity in the church, it is because something in the church has become more important to us than the love of Jesus. 
some extra biblical issue. Now, again, I'm not talking about biblical issues. I'm not talking about I get up here and start talking about, you know, we're going to handle. We are never going to handle snakes. I promise you the only way we handle them is with a shotgun. Boom, dead snake, good snake. Amen. So it's never going to happen. But I'm not talking about, oh, we're going to, I'm going to start preaching prosperity gospel or, or we're going to bring in Buddha statues. I start doing that, fire me, okay? Get a new preacher. I start preaching false doctrine, get a new guy up here. But if I'm preaching the gospel and I'm preaching the Bible and we get upset over silly stuff, it's because that stuff's more important to us than the love of Jesus. You know, look at Jesus' disciples. You know, first of all, you had Matthew. Remember Matthew? He was a tax collector. Remember, we've said this about tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews because they were Jewish men who worked for the Roman government to collect taxes from other Jews. So they were, he also had a disciple named Simon the Zealot. You ever wonder... What was he so zealous about? Simon the Zealot was part of a radical guerrilla military group at the time whose sole purpose was overthrowing the Roman government. You have a right-wing anti-Roman government zealot working with a Roman tax collector. And there's no record of Simon the Zealot and Matthew getting into it. Why? Because those issues didn't matter because the gospel's what mattered. Showing the love of Jesus was what mattered. They had unity. They were so unified that as they're praying in the upper room after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit filled them. They go out and get thousands of people saved and brought into the church. They were so unified, the Bible says they turned the world upside down with the gospel. It means they got the gospel to every known part of the world at the time. Twelve guys who had everything to be angry about against each other no technology, no Twitter, no Facebook. Maybe that's the key. Because they couldn't see their differences. But they were unified and God used them. They were vastly different politically. But they were unified under Christ. And here we are. We get so upset. Some believer who's a friend of ours posts a meme about a guy we like or a political opinion we don't agree with, so we unfriend them. Or we blast them on Facebook. I've seen, now, it's calmed down a lot since the election. I know a lot of people are still upset about the election, but since the election, it's calmed down. But during the election, I saw so many believers fighting each other because they supported a different guy. Who cares? That doesn't hurt the gospel. You know what hurts the gospel? Believers bickering about stuff like that. Because the whole world sees and says, well, they're not together. So if, if God can even keep them together, he must not be real. We, we get upset about other stuff. That other stuff is, means more to us than Jesus. We can't let our opinions about non-biblical issues separate us from those that love Jesus 
or those that need the gospel. Disunity in the church happens because we love Jesus less than we love our pet issue. Jesus said if we did this, then the world, if we were unified, then the world would know that he sent us. The most powerful tool to share the gospel and to see people saved is the love of Jesus on display. You know, in John 13, Jesus said that the world, we would know we were his followers by how we love each other, how we forgive each other, how we bear each other's burdens, and how we serve each other. If we lived like that, if we as a group of believers honestly, truly lived like that, we loved each other unconditionally. We loved our community unconditionally. We showed the love of God. If we lived like that, we wouldn't have to invite people to church. They would flock here. So how do you know that? Because Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. If you show my love to everybody, people will come to see what's, what's so different about these people. That's how we reach the world. Jesus said if we lift him up, he'll draw them into him. And we lift him up by loving him, loving each other, and loving others. You know, if Jesus prayed these final things, these three things on the final night of his life, then we should be praying them every day. And we can pray these things with confidence because Jesus didn't stop praying these things at the end of this chapter. He went from this prayer to the cross to make all these things possible for us. Hebrews tells us that after he rose, he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, and he is there constantly making intercession for us. He is praying these things for us right now, and we can join him by praying these things for ourselves. Pray that we can bring glory to God. Pray that we can know his word better and pray that we can show his love to everybody in our life.